scripture upon which the teaching is based this morning is John 21, and with it we conclude our sermon series on the Gospel of John. So you turn there with me in your worship guide or in your Bibles. And as well, I'll mention just a note of thanks at Trinity Harbor. We say that our mission is to be transformed by God's grace to heal the broken, to grow in community, and to establish churches that extend God's kingdom. And for those of you who were able to participate in the Green Door run yesterday in some capacity, what happened? When you made a priority of that by either signing up and giving money or by volunteering, we were transformed by God's grace as we began to order our priorities according to the kingdom. We said we're serious about healing the broken because we know that money goes to build homes in Mozambique or goes to provide a house for orphans in India. And either way, either direction that money goes, it's all about healing the broken through CRI. So we're serious about growing in community because we labored together and encouraged one another. And we said uh, we're serious about uh, establishing churches that extend God's kingdom because every time we participate in the ministry of the G Brothers, we're helping ultimately to plant churches in the deep forest and see that kingdom extend. So it was a great labor yesterday, and I'm grateful for those of you who participated. Uh, it is exciting and life-giving to engage our mission together. And so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's conclude our consideration of the Gospel of John. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. A disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciples whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table, at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread aboard among, abroad among many, among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Historically, and most commentators tend to be inclined to agree that this disciple that is referred to elusively in the Gospel of John as the one whom the Lord has loved is actually John himself. John's writing the Gospel but never makes reference to himself. He alludes to himself in this sort of mysterious way. And it makes one, at least it makes me kind of yearn to know a little bit more about John. Who was this disciple and what motivated him and what happened for the rest of his life as Jesus seems to indicate that he will outlive most of the other disciples, certainly uh, Peter, according to the end of the Gospel of John. What, what was John about? What was he like? It's interesting that Eusebius, who was a historian, a Roman historian, who was also a Christian, he lived, uh, he was born around the middle of the 3rd century, around 260 A.D., and lived into the 4th century, around 340 A.D., he tells a story about John that's been handed down. He says it's been handed down from those who actually knew John. The story tells of John very late in life, after he had been released from imprisonment, that he had come upon a youth of which he was fond. He saw a lot of potential in the youth, and he expected him to become a leader in the church. And so John entrusted him to the local elder who was there and said, Listen, I need to keep moving among the churches. I have work to do, but I'm entrusting this youth to you to take care of. I expect you to invest in him, to build him up, that he would be a leader in the church. The elder says, Of course, I'll take on this responsibility. John goes away, and the young man begins to grow. The elder's investing in him, but over time, he starts to to fall away. Some things haven't necessarily changed. Listen to the the ways in which Eusebius tells this story. From thousands of years ago, he writes of this young man, but some youths of his own age, idle and dissolute, and accustomed to evil practices, corrupted him when he was thus prematurely freed from restraint. At first they enticed him by costly entertainments, Then when they went forth at night for robbery, they took him with them. And finally they demanded that he should unite with them in some greater crime. He gradually became accustomed to such practices, and on account of the positiveness of his character, 
Leaving the right path and taking the bit in his teeth like a hard-mouthed and powerful horse, he rushed the more violently down into the depths. The story goes on that the young man actually becomes a leader of the robbers and is making his life this way, stealing from those upon the paths of the ancient world. The story goes on that John eventually returns. And he goes to the elder and he says, How's the church? The church is great. And John says, but what about the deposit I left with you? And the elder doesn't know what he's talking about. The elder thinks that he's talking about some amount of money that was left with him, and he's worried that he thinks that he's stolen the money. And he said, no, the, the young man that I entrusted to your care. Well, the elder begins to weep and relays to John the story, and John proceeds to, to rent his garments to tear them in mourning. And he proceeds to berate the elder for his failure in shepherding the youth well. And he calls for a horse. And the horse is brought and John proceeds immediately to ride into this dangerous area, this den of thieves where the robbers hang out to find this youth. Upon which he uh, is in this situation of being confronted by the robbers and says, I'm, you know, I'm here to see so and so. And at the confrontation he makes it clear that he is willing to lay down his life if it should, contribute at all to the restoration of this young man. He says, in effect, how could I do anything less than what Christ has done for me? What a remarkable demonstration of courage. What a display of confidence in Jesus and His work and how that could be applied to another human being. Is that the kind of courage that you possess? It's the kind of courage that Peter is being called to. If you notice, we'll talk about it more in depth as we proceed, but Jesus moves from going through these three times in which he asks if Peter really loves him, immediately into relaying to Peter his future, which is that he will be crucified. Where he tells Peter that you will be led somewhere where you don't want to go and you will stretch out your hands. The language there for stretch out your hands was a a current-day idiom for crucifixion. This is what's going to happen to you. And so he says to Peter, after this brilliant, intimate engagement with Peter, which seems to be restorative for Peter's sin, he proceeds immediately to say, and this is what I have for you. What kind of courage would it take to walk down that road where Christ, resurrected from the dead, sits before you and says, yes, and you're headed to the cross. Goodness, is this what resurrection is all about? Is this the best that Jesus had to offer Peter? Is Jesus being punitive in some way after the fact, a little passive-aggressive? Great, I'm glad you love me. Have fun on your cross. What's going on? And how do we begin to pursue this kind of courage? We see courage in the person of John, but we also see courage in Peter because I mean, not only of what he has to wrestle here with what Jesus is revealing to him, but remember that Peter, not so long ago, denies Jesus three times. So somehow, in the wake of the resurrection, Peter will go from being the person who denies Jesus three times at his most dire moment to being the person who will, who is chosen to suffer and to die in the likeness of Christ. And we don't have a historical account, but tradition has it that Peter will eventually be crucified in Rome having testified to the gospel, and legend also has it, that at the moment of his crucifixion, he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord was. 
Turn me upside down. That's a big change. How does Peter go from the coward in the courtyard, denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows, to saying, hang me up. I'm privileged to go in the way that my master has. What does it mean for us to know that kind of courage? I think John is very. John does a funny thing here at the end of his gospel. If you look back to chapter nine or chapter twenty, it actually seems like he ends it. Right? He's, he has this concluding statement. He says, "This is why I've written all this, so that you may believe in the Son of God." And you think, "Oh, okay, great." And and then all of a sudden, chapter twenty-one comes up. It's like the story that comes after the fact. And I think John sort of found himself in a place of that's not really how I want the gospel to end. We've talked about somewhat abstractly the effects of the resurrection, but I really want to end on a story that actually demonstrates the power of the resurrection. And this is why he adds on chapter 21 at the end. So, we find ourselves with the, uh, the disciples of Jesus going fishing. An odd thing perhaps to do after the resurrection, but surely they were hungry as well and had to make a living. And so they're out fishing in their boat. They meet a stranger who uh, ultimately is revealed as the risen Christ, and they begin to break bread and to eat fish with him on the shore. And it's in this context that Jesus offers restoration. He offers forgiveness. He, he offers um, the rehabilitation of Peter, something that he didn't have to offer. If we go back in the story... Jesus says to, to Peter in chapter 13, way back in 13, verses 36 through 38, he, uh, Jesus already actually says, listen, you're going to follow me one day. And he's alluding to Peter ultimately following him in the cross. But he says, you can't follow me right now. And Peter is shocked in 13. He says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'm ready. I am ready to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, really, actually, you're going to deny me three times when you have the opportunity to lay down your life for me. And so the story goes forward, and in 18 we see Peter do just that. Before the rooster would cry, he has denied Jesus three times and weeps in anguish over his lack of strength, his lack of courage, his lack of willingness to stick it out with Jesus in that moment where the story seems to be going hopelessly awry. How could Jesus end up dying? How could he end up on the cross? And he bails at that point. But here we have now Jesus asking three times, do you love me? Three questions to undo three denials. The denials happen over a charcoal fire, and so the setting is set very similarly on the beach as the fire burns and the fish cook. And Jesus, in mercy and compassion, not having to extend it at all, says, Peter, do you love me? And and Peter says, yes, and... He says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? And here the text says that Peter is, is grieved. Right? Can you imagine? Right? Eventually Peter must realize what's going on. And you can imagine the shame or the guilt that Peter feels. And it's being pressed home. You know, what's, what's Jesus doing here? Is he simply highlighting that he's well aware of my indiscretion? Does Peter feel inside of him, does he want to say yes? Jesus, okay, obviously you know I denied you three times. Let's get that out on the table. 
And in his anguish, he says, you know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, tend my lambs. It's a picture of such mercy and compassion, how that Jesus would allow Peter to, to experience something that undoes the shame and the guilt that has characterized him before. You know, the story I was telling you about John going after that wayward youth. You know, imagine how the wayward youth felt when John shows up on horseback, this old man coming after him. He says, hey, I want to I see the leader of this den of robbers, right, walking in. You imagine that John being old, but also being filled with the, the, the faith and the resurrection of Christ. I like to imagine his fearlessness. You know, what are you going to do, take my life? There aren't many days left anyway. And he demands to see the youth, and the youth sees John in the story. What do you think he does when he sees John? He tries to flee. The story goes like this, but John, forgetting his age, pursued him with all his might. Right? So you've got this old man, John, going after the youth, crying out, Why, my son, dost thou flee from me? Thine own father, unarmed, aged. Pity me, my son. Right? Please stop running. Pity me, my son. Fear not. Thou hast still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for thee. If need be, I will willingly endure thy death as the Lord suffered death for us. For thee will I give up my life. Stand, believe. Christ has sent me. He, the youth, when he heard, first stopped and looked down. Then he threw away his arms and then trembled and wept bitterly. So what motivates the youth? He's in a place of strength and power. He's walked away from the faith that has been entrusted to him. John shows up, his father in the faith. And in seeing John, he says, I've got to run. Right? The shame, the guilt. If here's my father in the faith, now he sees me in the road that I've taken. I would, I would prefer to move myself out of this context than face him then come clean, then, then enter into this place of actually confronting my guilt or my shame. You and I know all about that way of handling our guilt and shame. We, we sin. We deny Jesus in our own ways time and time again. And we each have dispositions in those denials, but we tend to gravitate either toward guilt or shame. Guilt is this overwhelming sense of responsibility. I've, I've failed, and I'm responsible, and I am guilty. Shame is a little bit different. Shame is more the overriding sense of, uh, I'm unworthy, I need to hide. And you, we all experience both. Right? When you're guilty, you feel that pressing down. The way our flesh tends to communicate to us, the way we handle this guilt is what? We make up for it. We labor. Oh, I've done something. I really spoke unkindly to the kids this morning. I feel guilty. What am I going to do? I'm going to buy them a toy. I'm going to go home and intentionally spend time with them. I'm going to do something that I believe undoes my guilt. But if it's shame, I tend to just recede, to hide, until that sense of shame passes. You can probably, if you think back in your own life, you don't have to think back that far where you saw someone in a store at a restaurant. 
and you kind of shrinked from going up to that person. Or perhaps a friend called and you just you ignored the call. And what was going on is not that you're busy or not that you, uh, you were going to call them back later, but that when that name popped up or you saw that individual, they represented, in a sense, a, a righteousness of Christ. And, and, and somehow it related to some shame that you were experiencing and you had that sense that I would prefer to hide. I would prefer not to be known. That's shame. These are the two ways in which when we sin... We tend to say, oh, well, I know that I don't feel right. I know that I'm alienated from God in some capacity. Now I'm going to try to deal with it. So I'm either going to do works that, that undo or make up for, or, or as you see yourself negative, right? You're in the red. You're going to put yourself in the black. Or you're just going to hide. All right? Often with hiding comes a lot of escape. You're going to watch something, grab a book. Right, do something that distances you from the shame that you feel. This is what happens for the, the young man that John is reaching out to. But we see ourselves in that story that when our shame or guilt, that light shines upon that, how quickly we run to either in our own strength make up for it or to hide. Right? And that's always been our story. If you think all the way back to Eden, what are the two reactions? Let's clothe ourselves and let's hide. Over and over and over again, for centuries and centuries and centuries, this is still our default. It was still Peter's default. Grieved at the third question, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. How desperately perhaps Peter would have wanted to say, you know, since... Since that denial, I've been working really hard to tell your story or to simply slink away and to hide and to not be seen. One of those two options. But something else is happening here, not just in the issuing of forgiveness, but Jesus is doing something radical, something surprising, because each time that he allows Peter to confess his love, to undo the denials that have proceeded, he also charges him. He gives him mission. He gives him purpose. He says, he's not just saying, I forgive you. He's saying, I forgive you. And part of what's always bound up in my forgiveness is restoration. Therefore, I trust you. I give this to you. You're invited back in to participate. Right? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. One Bible commentator tells a story that illustrates the idea. He had a group of friends over for dinner. It was a nice dinner, lovely affair, fancy. They brought out all the best dishes, and one of the the people who was particularly excited to be included wanted to, of course, help clean up, and being a little bit anxious about the people who were gathered there and rushing to clean up, he took one of the uh, cherished crystal heirlooms of the house and uh, accidentally dropped it, and it smashed to a million pieces. And, of course, the, the hosts were... Tried to be gracious, but they were pretty, pretty sad, pretty heartbroken. It's a pretty dear, uh, dear piece in their household and to their family history. And so the man was very awkward. He, he apologized. He said he would replace it, but he excused himself from dinner pretty quickly. And so afterwards, the man and his wife sat down and said, what, this isn't right. What are we going to do? And so they invited the man back over to dinner and dinner proceeded fine and he wasn't himself. 
Things hadn't been returned to normal, and so after dinner, they handed him a dish towel, clearly communicating the expectation that he would participate in the cleaning of the dishes. In other words, saying to him, yeah, we know what you did. You cost us, but we love you, and you're still invited to participate in our home, and it isn't held against you in any way. And that's what Jesus is communicating to Peter to draw him back into uh, the, the fold, so to speak, not just of those who believe in Jesus, but what, what Jesus is doing is transitioning Peter from, yeah, I've sinned terribly, I'm filled with guilt and shame, okay, I'm forgiven, but it's more than that. Jesus is saying, I love you. Right? That's far more powerful. It's not simply that your sins are taken care of, they're removed. No, you're my friend and my brother. And I'm committed to you being a full participant in what is unfolding. And that is Jesus' commitment to us as well in the midst of our sins. Now, what is shocking about the passage, what is difficult, what should give us all pause is where Jesus goes from this beautiful scene. Right, Peter, I love you. You're restored. I charge you with this mission. And you're going to die on a cross. That's rough. You know, you almost, I wonder if Peter is it like, whoa, where did that go? Like, how did we just get from, this was really nice, and now I'm headed to a cross. You know, what about the tending sheep and feeding sheep part? That was good with me. I'm happy to be a shepherd. But going to the cross, stretching out my arms, you'll be led where you don't want to go. How can this be part of the story? That's not very attractive. What is it with death? Right, it seems like there's a robbery going on. It's something that shouldn't, that it, that it interrupts what Jesus is doing in his resurrection. Yeah. Surely you have struggled with this question. If death is the consequence of sin and Jesus has remedied sin, then why isn't death lifted? Right? That's, I think that's a pretty good question. If death was the consequence of sin, Jesus has conquered sin and death, we keep dying. Why does that keep happening? Did Jesus maybe not conquer? Well, we say we have eternal life after death, but we're still going through death. Maybe we need to understand that a little bit differently. Ellie Lobel was, uh, was 27 when she was diagnosed with Lyme disease. Lyme disease is pretty treatable if it's captured early. In fact, most people make a, a full recovery, but she didn't know at 27 to look for that bullseye mark of the tick bite, and it went unnoticed, the bite did, until she started to feel horrible and, and spent a year going to different doctors and was at various times diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, no one could determine what was actually afflicting Ellie until they finally found that bacteria which goes with Lyme disease, uh, the bore, forgive me, Borrelia. I have to ask Jake if I'm saying that right later. The Borrelia bacteria are a very nasty bacteria because they're very adaptable and they like to hide. So what happens if you have this and it's advanced, it can hide all over your body, very difficult to detect. Then you can be flooded with antibiotics and the bacteria play dead. They go dormant. 
And so you think, okay, progress has been made, and you come out off of the antibiotic, and they rage again, and you feel horrible. And so by the age of 46 or 47, Ellie had decided that she was done. She felt horrible. She had expended all of her uh, resources capitally in trying to get better. Uh, she had seen many friends in Lyme disease support groups go on, uh, either ending their suffering or dying as a result of their body just increasingly shutting down. And so Ellie didn't believe that she would see her next birthday, and she moved to California ready to die. She spent most of her time curled up in a bed in pain, but as she was believed this was the end of her days, she decided to go out for a walk in the woods to breathe in the, the air and the sunshine, and was out with her caregiver when she was attacked by bees. Now, Allie is also uh, one, that 1% to 5% of the population that is highly allergic to bee stings. As a child, she'd been stung by a bee and gone into anaphylaxis. And so the bees are attacking her head. And uh, the really odd part of the story is the caregiver flees. <laughs> right? You're like... That's not the way this story is supposed to go. But Ellie describes just her head. She being covered her head and the top of her body with bees. She covers her face with her hands and falls down and actually says, okay, this is actually going to be a lot quicker than what I was looking at. I'm ready to go. The bees eventually, after stinging her dozens of times, uh, flee and the caregiver returns <laughs> to help. Ellie, and uh, says, listen, we need to go to the hospital. Ellie says, no. No, this is, this is it. Take me home, uh, help me get into bed, and come get my body in the morning. And so the caregiver delivers Ellie to her home, puts her in bed, and Ellie doesn't die uh, immediately. She doesn't die over the next few hours. She doesn't go into anaphylaxis. Her body's racked with pain. Looking back now, they think that it was a particular reaction where bacteria that were dying give off certain toxins, and her body was ridding itself of those toxins, and that she was actually being purged of the bacteria that affect her, that produce the Lyme disease, because uh, the bee stings have a certain toxic compound that was attacking the bacteria which caused the Lyme disease. So uh, Ellie, who's very well now, administers a regular dosage of bee stings to herself. Right? This is this is something that's being experimented with. Real, you know, medical studies are being done on the effect of this compound in, in bee stings. But Ellie firmly believes that she was completely healed, healed by uh, inject, being attacked by bees and injecting bee venom into her body regularly over a period of time. Now, the point of the story is this: right, Ellie is afflicted, believes that she's going to die, and then is attacked by bees. And says, okay, this, this is it. This is my death. But this horrible occurrence, this, this fulfillment of her greatest fear as a child growing up with a, a high allergy to bees is actually salvific to her. It's actually something that sets her free, that redeems her. That moment of what she perceived to be death was life. You know, one of the interesting things about the Gospel of John is how little Jesus has to say about death or eternal life in the sense that we often construe it. As we close the Gospel of John, I want you to ask this question as you reflect perhaps back on what we've covered. How far from the Gospel of John have we drifted? Do we not tend to think of salvation and Jesus dying as something that guarantees an eternal life that's after death? 
Okay, fine, I don't deny that at all, in the least. But where are you turning in John to see that real, be a real emphasis of John? What has John actually spent his time relaying to us what Jesus taught? Well, a lot about receiving sight, a lot about drinking water and becoming life-giving water, a lot about uh, being blind and having sight, a lot about being born again, and the context where all of those events happening are in this life. They're not things that are expected in the life to come. Yes, they'll be perfected in the life to come. And perhaps death isn't, isn't this, we tend to see it as the gateway to get to where we're going, and in one sense it is, but perhaps death is also, or looking at it from another vantage point, is simply the nail in the coffin of our old self. That it is finally, as Jesus begins to wake us up and we come to faith in Him and begin to grow, wakefulness, seeing, drinking of His water, becoming a fount of life-giving water, as this is all happening, we're never actually free of the old self in this life until death. Until it's finally stripped, those claws are taken away and we're made free. And I think this is how, how John, how the apostles, and certainly how Paul, when he says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Does Paul mean simply that there's an inheritance waiting, and when you die, you get it, and you get to be with Jesus? Certainly that. But if we were to read 1 Corinthians 15, we would also get the notion that death finally strips us of everything that entangles us in the brokenness of this world. And in that, I like to think that by the time Peter gets to the cross... He greets it with warm arms. That he says, yes, finally, that which afflicts me, that which binds me, is going to be stripped away and I will be free and clear and everything that is old and sin and contaminated will be done away with. And it's the faith in this reality that is the courage that comes to equip him on the trip to that old cross. But... Even as he's confessed, do you love Jesus? Yes, you know all things, Lord. You know I love you. Does Peter really love Jesus? What does he do as soon as it's revealed to him that he's going to the cross? You've got to love this. It's so human. It's so us. He says, uh, okay, what about this guy? Right? What's his story going to be? Since you're handing out death sentences... Right? Can you trump crucifixion? You know, John seems to be getting off the hook here. Right? Is that not utterly what... You have this sweet moment with Jesus' restoration, this terrible revelation that you don't probably fully understand what will play out, and then what do you do? You say, oh, well, I don't feel very good right now. I'm going to extract that from someone else. I will feel better if you say something equally horrible to John, as you've just said to me. What does Jesus say? Essentially says this, everybody's story is different. John's got a certain road to walk down and he's going to give unique testimony for longer years and have a, a ministry of writing and you're going to have a different road. And it doesn't matter how his road ends and it, you don't need to be, all you need to be worried about is what? Jesus says it two times. Both when he when he tells him about the cross, and then when Peter pushes back by deflecting to John, and each time Jesus addresses it, he says, "Listen, follow me." 
You know what you need to worry about here is simply following me. And hopefully that brought Peter back to the reality that had just occurred, which is that Jesus said, I love you profoundly, and I restore you, and it's out of that love that you can be courageous, so follow me. And it's the charge that John gives to us as he closes his gospel. And as we go forth, and even as Peter fails right before us to love Jesus well, we fail to love Jesus well. How then do you move in a direction of guilt and try to atone for your own sin? Futility. You want to be exhausted? You want to have nothing left inside? By all means, atone for your own sin. Or shame. There's no place you can hide from your sin. You will try, and it won't work. So what's the answer? It's the answer of running to Christ and understanding who He is in John 21. He says, I know your sin. In fact, I know you and your sin better than you do, and it's far worse than you even conceive it. Because you constantly paint yourself in the best light possible. But even though that's the case, I love you deeply, and I'm committed to you being made into my image. And in that you can be courageous, and in that you can follow Him. Because He is the only thing that will love you, and in that love, your sin will be handled. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in Your love for us. It is profound, and it is deep, and it is strong, and it undoes uh, the most uh, heinous of sins. We rejoice in your, your, Your love, Your mercy, Your compassion. And as we go to the table, we are reminded that your body and blood have redeemed us and restored us. Lord, make us into that which you would have us to be. Forgive us for hiding in our shame and, and making our own stories in our guilt. And wake us up. And out of your love, may we have the courage truly to follow you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.